So I'm in Clane, County Kildare. It's about a 40-minute drive from Dublin city centre. I'm in a housing estate in a suburb, and I'm here to speak to someone. Say hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Morning. Hi. How are you? Hey, I'm Anya Ryan and I'm married to James. Um, we have four children and we're living in Clane. We bought this house in 2009, I think it was, and it's a three-bed bungalow, semi. When we bought this, it was supposed to be like a starter home. It has a great big back garden, but as you can see, it's very small. So now that we have four kids, it doesn't really suit us anymore. We've got a, it's, it's a, an okay size sitting room. I don't mind the sitting room being small. I like it cosy. Um, the kitchen is an okay size, but for the size of our family, our table really doesn't fit into it. It kind of goes out into where there used to be a wall for the hall. And then our bedrooms literally open out into the kitchen as well. So it, like, it really is kind of like an apartment. Like the bedrooms, the door to Seamus... Seamus's bedroom is in the kitchen and the door to my bedroom is in the kitchen and the hot press is also now in the kitchen and then we have a door blocking that to the hallway our bathroom is there and the girls room like it's very small <laughs> like it's literally at the moment we're decluttering and trying to get rid of as much stuff as we possibly can because we will have to extend so okay so you're thinking of even like extending further is that if I got that no, right no that's not an extension Okay. That's not an extension. It looks, everyone thinks that that is an extension, the knocking of the walls. That's actually not an extension. We need to extend out. Yeah. So okay. I need really a four bedroom house. Obviously, more storage, place to put buggies and everything else. Possibly utility, like obviously, do without utility. What I really need is just more, a bigger house, basically, just to fit the kids in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is. It, it It's small. Like, okay, when you notice it is the likes of when Leodon comes in to do a homework and Ava and I do their homework. I do often have to say to James, right, okay, bring the two boys on the walk because there's no way really for them to do their homework other than the kitchen. And the boys are usually running around the house. And because it's a bungalow as well, I suppose it's a bit more awkward. You can't just send them up to the bedrooms, you know, because if they go into their bedroom, they can still hear everything because it's all on one level. So our original plan was to possibly buy a property kind of out on its own with some land. I suppose that's everyone's kind of dream when you move to home to claim. And then obviously because I'm not working now, I'm at home with the kids and because of the cost of childcare and everything else, we've gone to, I don't know, four different banks. And even though we've proven that we can financially afford to buy another house because we've proven we've never missed out on a mortgage payment, they won't give us the loan that we need because every child you have, they actually deduct an amount that they will allow, allow you to borrow so you know i don't think anya is the only one whose dreams of owning a home have had to be adjusted okay she has a home that's great but that doesn't make her issues go away because she has to live her life too just maybe not as she had hoped
over-informed. Hello, I'm Sebastian Stevenson. We're a bit behind, supposedly. Be it the aftermath of a financial crisis or the job market not really ready for us to take over. Or you can just about give an arm and a leg for your deposit, but you're not sure if you can give your neck away for the rent. We as a generation have been a bit slow compared to previous about owning a home or renting independently. Though is it really the case that the world isn't ready for us, or is it that we are looking around and seeing what is on offer and it doesn't suit us? Or is it that the world doesn't really want us to live alone yet? Maybe it will never be ready. Today, we are going to look at the ways we are going to have to define home. Home usually tied to a location, a place. Of course, in recent times, a new way of working and thus living has emerged. There is now the possibility to work in multiple countries and cities. This leads to you renting multiple places for when you need them or signing up to a co-living service. Co-living is a concept where you become a member of any one of their buildings based around the world. You pay them rent to live in a shared building. They can provide amenities and events for their members. Its value can be in its ability to pair you up with people and create your own new social network. Depending on the co-living brand you are with, you are able to access any other of the buildings owned by the company around the world when you need them or want to move to another city or country. There is one in Dublin. It's run by the company Node. So let's speak to the CEO of Node, Anil Kira, in his headquarters. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now making our final approach into London Heathrow. Please make one final check that your seatbelts are securely fastened. So I've just come off uh, Piccadilly on the West End and I'm now heading to Berkeley Square, heading to meet the CEO of Node and find out more about co-living and particularly his suite of buildings. There's a massive shift that we're seeing around the world of urbanization. We're going to go from a planet that's about 40% urban to 70% urban during our lifetimes. Those exact numbers are not exactly right. According to a United Nations report called World Urbanization Prospects, in 2014, 54% of people in the world lived in an urban area. And this is set to be 68% by 2030. It's the same trend line. When you overlay that with how people are living their lives more global, changing jobs every two to three years and moving around the globe, the whole lifestyle of how people are going to live, especially in their 20s and 30s, completely different from what we've seen before. And so Node is really a reaction to fill that gap of globally mobile creatives wanting a place to live, 
wanting to live in authentic communities, but also have the benefits of being global. So what we really created at Node is the concept of having an Instagram-ready apartment that you could move in pretty much at the touch of a smart button, and with it, try to curate a community of vibrant, creative people that would be interesting to live with. And when you put that all together, you're getting convenience and community in one offering in a plug-and-play way. We think that is really going to help these new urban globetrotters and creative types in, in a housing situation that they have. Plus doing it in a cost-effective way in urban central locations and neighborhoods people want to live in, that's really where we're focused on. Say I wanted to, it would be fair to say, become a member of Node. What, what, what is the kind of process for that and how do I pay for it and what are the, the ways yeah, that works? If someone wants to become a resident at Node, they typically apply on our website, tell us a little bit about themselves and our community curators get in touch with them. Coming from a tour, meeting other residents, getting to know the area, and we also offer roommate matching as well. If someone wants to become a resident, it's really an application process, getting to see the community that you're going to live in and meet some of the people that you might live with. So that's the first step. In terms of price points and rates, you know, each of our buildings in different cities really range. But what we've tried to do is create a product that if someone's making about 40k a year, whether that's dollars, euros, etc., and upwards, we've got a product in one of our cities to fulfill their housing needs. Our residents are creative professionals, entrepreneurs, I would definitely say highly engaged in the digital economy and really focused on wanting to make a difference in their day-to-day jobs. So it's a real These range from digital marketing, in Dublin, being an entrepreneur, a higher and higher company, working at the Google, Facebooks, Twitters of the world as well. It really spans, but I think the main commonality of what we've found is people who are really trying to be creative in their capacity, and that could go across fintech, marketing, the digital world, technology. It can span a lot of different industries where people work, also the art world. Anything that involves a creative mindset, we've found have really been a key commonality of where people work. So it's the creative digital economy, I would say. There's sort of a slight tension in a way with these sort of things with co-living is that obviously you want to have that place of community and that's what the people who come to you do want as well in a way sort of an instant community to give a phrase to it but also they do want to be mobile they want to be transient so there's an interesting kind of I guess tension in there as well. Well, absolutely. But if you look at what the alternative would be, if you were this type of globetrotting creative and every six months or three years you're moving from city to city and you have to restart from scratch, that's really difficult. And so to actually be at Node and move around with us, it creates some constant community in there. And so what we think is by having this network effect and being multi-location, we can actually create a more consistent community globally. So rather than thinking about community as just one city in one building where you are, you're thinking of like, wow, I'm part of a node global community, but from time to time I'll be in different local nodes. And so that's the way of balancing that tension. Do you see this as like replacing owning houses or apartments or even traditional rental? Well, most large urban cities actually have a higher renter rate than, in, than the living rate. So even to take the U.S., for example, in New York City and San Francisco, 70% of people who live in those cities are renters. According to the 2010 U.S. Census, 64.2% live in rented accommodation in San Francisco, and it's 69% in New York City. Again, the trend is accurate. short on time and want convenience, renting can be a better lifestyle option, especially in an earlier stage. So 
I think for earlier stage living where you really need flexibility and mobility, there will be a shift to people who say, actually, even if I could afford, it's not the right time for me to do that. And so we do think there'll be a higher percentage of renters, especially in the 20s and 30s cohort, for sure. So what is it like to live in one? So I'm now in Fitzwilliam Square and I'm now going to Node Dublin, or at least their node in Dublin. It is near Fitzwilliam Square, it's just a little bit beyond the actual square itself. A little bit past it, but it's definitely you would definitely say on Fitzwilliam Square. Anyway, let's go and meet residents of Node Dublin. One of the residents has kindly accepted my request to have a nose around their space. Her name is Kelly Fischado. She's a Node member with a background in social work admin, along with her husband who works in finance, and the company he works for has an office in Dublin. They both share a room share. Cool, thank you. All right, yeah, so this is a... So this is... Now, this is a... This is your husband and yourself's yes. room. And this is for... Me meant to be kind of a room share sort of thing, but this is kind of quite contained, I suppose, if you know what I mean. Like, it's very apartment-y. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it definitely is. There's like rooms, it's not like a big open flat area, like you come in and there's a hall on your right, and then you see a, a lar largest room with a, an ensuite room, then a bathroom down the hall. You go at the end of that hall, you go left, you'll see the kitchen, living room, and a bathroom just as you walk past it. Yeah, it's kind of like an L shape. Yeah. Yeah, and this, and this is the second bedroom. Yeah. This like this one room probably would be the size of some apartments you may have even seen around Dublin. Yeah, I mean it really. I like I know people. I don't know, especially for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we came from Chicago. This was a bit more, but it's also more space than we got there. So I think mm -hmm. for us too, just like really happy with it, and yeah. just the newness too was a yeah. huge sell. Like for us, it was brand new. For people who move in, it'll be a year old. Where. I mean, since we were looking at furnished stuff, it mm -hmm. was just like, wow, this is furnished and it's brand new f furnished too, yeah. like, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. Like you say it's all brand new, but like this looks like an old kind of mid-century fireplace, almost art deco-y, I would say, maybe. Just Yeah, it, no, it's cool. That's one of the few, I feel like, original touches still yeah. left mm -hmm. from the building, given mm -hmm. that it is what 200 years old or yeah. whatnot yeah, yeah um i suppose the one like theme thing in the building is kind of like this very dare i say gray kind of greeny dark kind of thing going on like there's cream white and then there's a dark green gray kind of thing going on like throughout the whole building and even yeah, into it's your super monochromatic mm -hmm. and uh a very neutral palette. So, That's another right? bathroom. This is the second bathroom. You've got two bathrooms. Yes, two bathrooms. So I think, right. Yeah. This one is a little bit smaller, yes. but um, like not by much, I would say. Would that be fair to say, do you think? Yeah, it's slightly smaller. Yeah. You've got a pretty big shower. Yeah, big shower. The shower is no smaller. Mm. I mean, it's like more room. I can spin around in it. <laughs> and this is your living room. Yeah, so wow. this is the living room and kitchen. Yeah. So it looks like half and half sitting room TV area and then 
a table in the middle and then a kitchen yeah, over to my left and your right. Yeah, just flows right into it. Yeah, definitely. It's, I don't know what, yeah. And you do have some windows, but it's more like build, you've got... Yeah, you've so we used overlook it. the alleyway. Oh, um, right. So there's another entrance there. Yeah. And then back there, this would be... Okay, you have a bit of a view on the other side of the room. I mean, there are a little bit better views. But sure. Like, so that was the little balcony area I was talking oh. about. We have our neighbors right there. So that's their yeah their spot. Wow. So yeah, wow. So, well, uh, like, yeah, it's probably going to be difficult from where we are to get, like, a decent view. But uh, it's just, <laughs> you know, we're seeing, like, the backs of buildings, like little right. car parks. There's, like, a little space that looks like it's a part of Node. Yes, yeah, so bike. residents can park their bikes back there, which mm-hmm. is nice. We don't. We just use the city bikes, yeah. but um, people use that for storage. Mm, mm. Um, and it's all very, yeah, contemporary furniture. There's a little bit of, of the theme go- of the greeny gray going on, yeah. which sounds probably much uglier than it looks. It's much, <laughs> it's much more pleasant. I wonder, because is there any rules about, like, do you, is there, like, a rule book of, like, how to dress the interiors, or, is it, or did you get anything like that? No, it was more just, like, we can't do paint. Like, you have to kind of leave the walls as oh, they okay. are, so... Right. And we were more than fine with doing that. We're like, oh, these are neutral enough colors. Like, that's fine. And they picked furniture to go with it. Like, there's no problem. But they, yeah, definitely didn't want painting. And then just to, if we were going to be hanging a bunch of stuff, just to kind of give them a heads up and let them hmm. let them know, like, sort of, if we were decorating a lot to ourselves yeah. Um, yeah well thank you so much for giving me a, a confidential tour of your <laughs> of your of your room or your place I know. so co-living is one novel way that people may live because of the changing ways we live our lives but is that how we are going to live forever maybe the service will be for a privileged few Maybe its selling point of being able to move around the world at a moment's notice is not a particularly valuable idea for everyone. Maybe we just want what our parents had or our grandparents. I mean, is that even possible at this point? Is that course we set for our lives even realistic? So I'm at Houston Station and I'm now going to head off to... Galway to meet the Pat Dolan, who works at the Institute of, for Life Course and Society in NUI Galway, and it's really, really barren. Like, there's only not all the stores are open at it's at around seven in the morning, which I was a bit surprised by, and um, probably disappointed. Anyway, let's get on this train. We are going to the Institute for Life Course and Society in NUI Galway. So you know the way that a lot of disciplines in some way or another try to explain our lives to us. Well, that's kind of what life course theory is. It's like a lens which uses academic disciplines such as sociology, economics and psychology along with other information it finds useful and focuses them along different ages and how the individual life is organized and understood. The Institute has a particular focus towards policy making, so government can use the academic discipline to guide policy for how to govern people's lives.
home and getting your own or renting one is considered, I think we can all agree, a recognized transition to adulthood. So I thought I would ask Pat Dolan of ILAS about those expectations. I guess home ownership is associated with having your own independence economically and your own, I suppose, space, you know, denotes a kind of, I am an adult, I'm, I'm not someone who is in, in support, I can support myself. Is that something that maybe now is causing a little bit of tension because that expectation may be still there, but it might be possible to fulfill? And is that something that's going to have to change in terms of the expectations, what we should expect of uh, are people who are 20 to 30 year old? Yeah. So well, I think that's a great question. I think, well, first of all, um, if we look, I'm using Ireland as an example, and I'm going to use a, a very different example in a second. So if we take it in Ireland, our social demographics are showing overall family size is, is growing and men and women are having children later in life. So, you know, that is a, a factor. The other factor is we live much longer, which is really interesting. So children born today, I mean, Professor Eamon O'Shea here, who's a, a gerontologist and has done a lot of research on dementia, he's saying that children born today are far more likely to see 100. When I was a young person, the president sent a telegram, you know, it was like a big, it was in the paper. There's going to be a lot more of those 100, I don't know what to get, a thousand euros or something, I don't know what to get. A lot more of those letters going out, uh, whoever... Our president is. The first thing is that older people dependency on younger people and the cost of caring is a huge factor. So one of the problems we have for young people is a lot of older people are going to have to sell their houses that they normally would have passed on, that their children would have inherited because they're going to need the money from the sale of the house to pay for them in a nursing home. That is a huge factor. And, you know, if tomorrow... If the number of adults in their 20s and 30s who are caring for older people were to say to the state, I'm not doing this anymore, it would cost the state a fortune. Caring for older people is a massive issue. So that's one factor that is going to diminish the supply of houses that naturally would have passed down between generations. I think in Ireland it may move to where what it's like in some European countries where, putting it very bluntly, the grandfather buys the house and the grandson pays off the last payment on it, or granddaughter pays off the last payment. It may take two generations to pay off the house because of costs and because of... And that will be one where it's occupancy-based. Now, it's not that unusual. I mean, in um, where I'm from in, in inner city Dublin, my father was born, that's my grandmother. You know, it's not that unusual. But I think we will see intergenerational mortgages. That's definitely going to be... You're going to see in the horizon. But it's interesting the way that in other cultures... I'm doing work at the moment with Dr. Carolyn Nash, who's based in Myanmar. I've a lot of work with uh, Rohingya youth and we're involved in... You know, things are pretty bad out there. But it's very interesting that if you talk to people, or in Vietnam, it would be another example, where you have housing and automatically the parents are already building an extension onto the house for their son or their daughter. They're thinking, and their son or daughter might be only three or four. They're thinking ahead. This is how I pass on the torch. You know, it's not possible to do that. Although in rural Ireland, maybe in farms, you could argue. But I think overall, what you're going to see is more pressure, less likelihood of young people if social policy keeps going the way it's going, less people have been able to afford a mortgage and either renting longer term, which is not a good idea, or waiting to inherit a house with the two options. It is interesting, by the way, that although I don't know if government policy will, because homelessness is such an issue in Ireland, it's such a crisis, the number of people who will go towards homelessness who previously were on that border, that young person that could have possibly got a mortgage, is increasing. That's a real worry. So there's that boundary between... 
I can afford a house. I nearly can afford a house. To I pay rent. To I don't have a secure job. To I'm homeless. And people think that's miles away. That's a couple of pay packets away for some people. And that's the one that I think really government policy and housing and young people will have to get right. And it is interesting. I wrote about this in the Irish Times a good few years ago where the Icelandic model was about when the crash hit Iceland, the first thing they identified was vulnerable families that needed support and acted early. It's interesting. It's only now we're talking about debt forgiveness and we're talking about supporting families and we're 10 years after the crash. And it does bother me. I'm using morally with a small m, but it does bother me that it's interesting that when the crash happened, the first thing that was worried about was how we bail out the banks. It wasn't about how we bail out families. And we're paying the cost of that now. And I think we're going to see, sadly see more of it into the future. Do you feel that how the state, what the state's relationship to people's housing needs are going to have to add a generational shift? Because you mentioned that obviously how maybe for someone, for possibly someone who's a little bit older, the, the distinction you make between nearly being able to have a mortgage from rent, just being able to rent to being on the street is kind of only a few pay packets away. Is that something that could possibly only be understood by people who maybe know what that is like? And, and, and Or do you feel that actually it is, it is shifting kind of now? I, I think it is shifting now because... Uh, and when I say generational shift, I mean kind of a, a, a new generation of kind of politicians, so kind of, you know, yeah. age-wise. Yeah, I think it is shifting. But, I mean, we had Peter McVerry here last summer speaking at a conference, and Peter was talking just over a cup of coffee. Peter is very forthright in what he says. And I have a sister, Teresa, who works with Brother Kevin in, in the Caption Friary in Church Street. They're feeding homeless people. You know, there's people coming in who are previously quantity surveyors. So the nature of the homeless population has changed drastically to the shame of this country. We have children now increasingly who are homeless in cars and all these things. So I think there's a, just a new problem there. It's different kind of homeless problem. And getting back to your question then about kind of, is it, is it, well, maybe one of the things we maybe have to start thinking differently about is the whole term house ownership. We may need to come up with soon. I'm not saying is that you just go to rent, but we need to maybe think about a much more collective. I know that the municipality in Unza in Denmark on a piece of work I did with Peter Steen Jensen many years ago, they moved to a model which was like social housing, but wasn't so. It was so. It was a, it was kind of a a rental purchase, long term rental purchase, low burden type of mortgage. It was done on the economic argument that overall, in the longer term, if you keep people out of the homeless realm or out of needing services, including mental health services, the state will save money. It actually saves more money by nearly buying the house for the person. That may seem crazy. But actually, there's a logic behind it from a, a purely social return on investment perspective. And that's not a new argument. If you, argument, if you look at Jim Heckman, the economist, his argument was that for every penny you spent in early years, you get it back in later. You know, so, the, you know, there's a whole a social return on investment argument about people's mental health and, and so forth. And criminal, you know, it's criminal as well. It's just a system. It's right across the board. I do think we will need to move to some kind of a model like that. Or maybe just in Ireland, we may need to think just to, you know, one of the arguments that um, has been made, I was in one of Pat McCabe's novels written brilliantly in the brilliance of the crazy way Pat writes stuff about this idea that, you know, well, I have to have my house. It dates back to the famine, you know. There's something in the Irish psyche, perhaps, about house ownership that makes us different, I think, to other countries in Europe. My daughter-in-law, Rebecca, is from Germany and from Berlin. And I know, you know talking families in Berlin look at house ownership differently than we do here. Maybe we need to start thinking about differently. I think the big thing is about, the word is security. It is about accommodation that you are secure in and that you're not a burden or dependent on your family. And those are two things that I think are pretty reasonable aspirations. 
So I suppose to bring it back to, I guess, yeah, if you're of a 20 to 30-year-old, what I suppose are the expectations you should have, and you've probably touched on them there as well, obviously speaking to, you know, speaking to uh, undergraduates and possibly postgraduates as well, um, but what are some of the things that I suppose, without getting too self-helpy, what are the expectations that we would need to have today that maybe are possibly being imposed by an older generation that just, just are not relevant for what our lives are set to be? Yeah, that's so, not a big enough question. No, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's pretty easy. <laughs> well, I suppose the first thing to say, talking to a lot of students here, I think the first thing is about, believe it or not, about hopefulness. And that might seem like a funny thing to, to say. Ironically, the advantage is there are a lot of young people who are in the same position. If you're the only person in that position, it's more difficult. The reason I say that is the more they're in the same position, the more onus there is on the state, policy, civic society to come up with solutions to change it. If you talk to... Um, as I've done, we have a, a centre here that researches people who are living with autism. They would say that one of the biggest problems they have is they're a small population, although a growing population, and that for that reason they're not heard. So I think for many young people who are in their 20s, 30s, the first thing is solidarity in numbers, because the plight that you face is a common plight. The second thing is to really think about, rather than thinking about a big bang theory on your career, think of it as incremental and that you need to have choice and change, that you literally don't put all your horse, your money on one horse for your career perspective, because you, you need to, to change, because things are just changing. It's just the nature of it. But one of the key things I would always say is change from a secure base. And this is getting back to Maslow's principles. What I mean by that is, even if you're a young person in a job that you may think is a dead-end job, or you've gone into something that really, geez, I don't know if I really want to do. I would say, yeah, do absolutely don't stay in that job, but don't leave it until you have another option. And I think one of the things that we need to try to create in universities is a a more option based approach for people who've come out with uh, with both undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, and b a much more skill orientated approach to education. I'm not being anti theoretical in saying that. But putting it very bluntly, the number of jobs that you can get with theory aren't too many. And I think we need to just be a bit more innovative. And the last thing is, you know, it's interesting that in, you know, purely from an employment point of view, there are trends. And I see it in here. So, you know, if every, every, I mean, I have views on the Leaving Cert that, you know, it's a crazy thing. But anyway, leaving that aside, uh, you know, it's harder to do a good Leaving Cert than it is to do a good PhD. And I could explain why that's the case. But it's just a crazy pressure over a 10-day or 12-day period in your life that if you're in any way ill or not up for it, you're screwed. It's crazy. Anyway, leaving that aside, you know, if you think about it for people who go through an education system and come out the other side of it and are, you know, out there on the labour market, they need to have, A, options that are available to them, but B, they need to be positioning themselves that they can get those options and supported to position themselves. And that's not kind of been a right-wing comment it, it, you know, it's just that that bridge needs to be kind of broached with them and for them. And I think there is a role in universities in helping young people post uh, BA and post an MA even that can get them there. Our executive producer is Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary, and I'm Sebastian Stevenson. Goodbye, I'm gone for your
We are a part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Check out our other podcasts at headstuff.org. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. If you have comments or suggestions, email us overinformed at headstuff.org. They might show up on a future episode and we'd love to hear from you. You have been overinformed. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.